This morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 3. And last Sunday was a, a very crucial teaching. Uh, it was only a few verses, but Jesus really packs a big punch in those verses. He spoke about the garment with the, with the unshrunk patch that's put on, on the garment and also the old wineskins with the old wine and the new wineskins with the new wine. Again, only a few verses, but the key to understanding all the skirmishes with the religious system from this point on until the cross and this gospel, the key to understanding all those debates and skirmishes really have to do with this crucial teaching. So if you didn't get it last Sunday, if you just get it for free online, it's very, very important. They were the, it's kind of funny because one thing I didn't say last Sunday was the old wineskins and the old wine a long time ago used to be new. But what happened is, you know, the old covenant, at, at, at the time God was doing a new work and the old covenant was brand new. But what happened over time is it, it, it gave its usefulness. It became useful in God's economy and it, it lived out its usefulness and it became old wine and old wineskin. So God had to do a new work, the new covenant. And we talked about this, Jeremiah 31, hidden deep into the Old Testament. I love to share this with my Jewish friends. Let's, let's go to Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And they're like stunned. They're like, well, I've never seen this before. Well, check this out. In your old covenant, it speaks about, God speaks through Jeremiah and says, I'm going to do something new. I'm going to blow your doors off. And that's a paraphrase. So what happens is you have the new wineskins that have to be able to handle the new wine. The expansion and contraction of the Holy Spirit. Us following the new thing that God is going to do. And just like those religious leaders 2,000 years ago, today religion can do the same thing. It can be so stuck in tradition, so stuck in the past, so stuck in maybe a new work that God did 50, 60, 100, 1,000 years ago, but now it's become old wine and God wants to do something new. So yes, it is indicative of the, old, of the new covenant, the wineskins and the wine, the new covenant, the Holy Spirit, the dispensation of grace, the ch church age, all this exciting stuff that... God was doing in the first century, but we can also make an application for ourselves today in our culture where religion is not really teaching people how to have a relationship with God. They're just saying, well, listen, this is the way we've done for hundreds of years. These are the rules, follow the rules, don't ask any questions. Man, that doesn't work today. That's old wineskins. So we're going to jump in and see yet another skirmish that the Lord Jesus Christ, while on earth, has with the religious system. Verse 1, and he, Jesus, entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand, and they watched him closely, meaning the religious leaders, certainly everybody was watching him, they, people heard a lot about Jesus, this new rabbi, prophet, you know, everybody was trying to get to know who he was, but they watched him closely, he was scrutinized whether he would heal the disabled man on the Sabbath or not, so that they might accuse him. Then he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. Imagine being there. Like I said, I always say this. I, I hope that God has some really neat audiovisual equipment up there. I would just like to see some of the stuff that happened in real time back then. You know? So Jesus says, step forward. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. So when he had looked around at them with anger, this is our Lord. Being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. 
So this is another Sabbath incident, another incident that's happening. And we covered the, the Sabbath as well as the wineskins extensively in last Sunday's teaching. This time, there's a healing of a man with a withered hand. And when you look up the Greek word for hand, it covers the hands and it covers the carpals and the metacarpals and part of the wrist. Okay, in English, we have more distinct words for each little segment of the body. So this is a good part of this guy's right appendage that's disabled. And we can ask the question, because that's just me. I'm very inquisitive. I have a lot of questions for God when I get there. Daddy, <laughs> what do you know? So number one, was it congenital? Was it from birth? Was it a farm accident? Because people worked with their hands back then. They didn't have automation to do all the work for them. Was it a disease? In Dr. Luke's gospel, he gives more details. He said that it was the man's right hand. Well, most of the population on the earth is right-handed, and he is a man, was a man. So did that affect his ability to earn an income? Did he get fired from his job? Right? We have to ask these questions. It did, they didn't have the same social nets as we do today. You'd have to resort to begging if you couldn't do this. So put yourself in this poor guy's position. But check this out. The first point that we notice is he was in the synagogue. The man was looking for God. He was looking for solutions. Right? If you, if you would, turn with me to Jeremiah 29. Big into Jeremiah this month. A lot of good stuff in that uh, prophetic book. Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13. Now, there's a contextual issue here. He's speaking, God is speaking to the exiles. He doesn't want them to faint and lose heart. Their time of suffering and trials and discipline was over. And he's going to do something really great in the, in the life of the children of Israel, his people. But there's also an application for us today. He says, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Now think about this. Claim this for yourself. God's thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. That's his desire. God doesn't want us to meander around our life and have no purpose. He wants to give us a future and a hope. He says, then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with your whole heart. Man, I love that. If we seek after God, we will be found by him. And that is a promise. And I tell people that. You really looking for God? Why are you here this morning in the church? Is it for a religious duty? Well, then we fall into the same trap as the Pharisees did. And these guys, there was no spirit in their group. Did we come here? Did you come here looking for God? Did you come here in the hopes that maybe you have an outstanding issue in your life? And you saw the church or somebody told you about the church and you just happened to come into this building. Well, God will meet you through his word. God will meet you through prayer. God will meet you through other people evangelizing. This is an awesome thing. He gave us free will to choose him or not, but he also draws us as well. And that's the beauty of our Father God. This man was looking for God and he found him. Second point. If I could jump to Matthew 12, 10. Taking all the Gospels together. This wasn't a, two, a two-second encounter. There was some discussion here. There was a pause probably. And then eventually Jesus heals the man. In Matthew 12, 10, it says, And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand, and they asked him, 
At some point, the religious leaders asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? Talk about how sterile, and I've experienced this as a young person, how sterile religion can be. This man has now become a hypothetical. So there's a man who's got a withered hand, and maybe he's here, maybe he's not. So what do you think? Should we heal him? Should we not heal him? Imagine you're the man. All of a sudden now you're the spotlight. He's a hypothetical case. He's a, a lab experiment. Imagine this guy with the withered hand. I don't know, does he have to have it slinged? Is it painful? Don't know, but he's in the synagogue. So he's got this withered right hand. And all of a sudden now he's the focus. People are talking about him. Wow, I didn't expect this coming to synagogue today. And Jesus is having this debate with the religious leaders. And they're asking him questions because they really don't want him to heal. Or if he does heal, it's a win-win for them. He doesn't heal, they get their way on the Sabbath. He does heal, they get to accuse him. So this poor man here is probably hoping in his heart of hearts, I really hope Jesus wins the discussion. Because I really want to be healed. No? I, just, I love that. I just love putting, putting myself in this guy's situation. But you know, brothers and sisters, we could do the same thing today. Hypotheticals, people or lab experiments. Here's the question. Do we sit around discussing the unsaved? Do we sit around discussing the poor or somebody who needs help? Or do we get off of our butts and be part of the solution? Amen? Amen. Amen. You know, it's great to know these great theological treatises, but do we do anything about it? See, the word and deed have to go together. It's great. I'm going to tell you something. I think every believer, especially in this culture, in the age of information, needs to know why they believe, what they believe, because at some point in your life, you will be challenged, and probably multiple times. And you can't just say, 1 Peter 3.15, oh, I just have faith. I just have this blind faith. That's not what God asks us to have. He asks us to have an articulable faith. He asks us to be able to explain what we believe to other people with respect right, and courtesy. So you have this situation where we know the word and we know the word and we know the word. But if we know the word, so much of God's word, and then we don't do anything to help others when we can, that's cold. That's cold religion. Because we got all this information. It tells us what to do. And we keep constantly passing by. Oh, I don't want to get involved. Oh, I don't want to see that. Oh, that looks pretty sad. You know, let's turn around and go the other way. Shield our children's eyes. I like to take my son to places where he gets to see how other people live, how they live differently from us, how they struggle. I want him to see these things. I don't want to shield him from it. Here's the other extreme. The other extreme is those who do, 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 do. They're always doing, 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 doing. And they don't even know what they're doing, why they're doing. And they're certainly not attaching the gospel to their actions. See, that's the other extreme. You need both. Because what's the sense in making someone's life better, giving them more money, healing them, or whatever, and they're just going to go to hell? That doesn't make any sense. So the word has to be married to actions. They both come together, and they both have to work in concert with each other. It's very important. Well, Jesus, the Lagos, the lawgiver, he turns this whole idea of the Sabbath on its ear. He basically says to them, he makes a different argument. He says, well, what's good to do on the Sabbath? To heal, to save life, or to kill? Oh, the religious leaders are probably thinking, well, I didn't expect that question. Jesus was telling them, he told them, you know, when we covered last Sunday, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And I'm going to tell you why I made the Father and I and the Holy Spirit got together and made the Sabbath. We made it for man. 
We didn't make it for man to worship this inanimate this entity, the Sabbath. So, James 4.17, again, you have the ability to do something. You have the means. You're constantly put in a situation where you can help and you refuse to. The Bible says that's a sin of omission. So, we're compelled to act out of our love. And also, what the Father, what, what, what God has done for us. Third point, Matthew 12, going back to Matthew 12. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. Matthew expands a little bit more of the conversation. Then Jesus said to them, meaning the religious leaders, What man is there among you who has one sheep? And they all often had sheep and farm animals. It was agrarian society, very different than the way we live. I know very few people have, who have sheep and goats today, and usually they keep them as pets or they, they use their wool. And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out. Or how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Again, this probably happened a lot. And I tell you what, if you were around Jesus, if I was around Jesus back then, we would probably be more honest. Because he probably looked around and he knew just how many of the religious leaders had an animal that fell into a pit or a trap or broke its leg or something and they needed to take care of that farm animal because it happened quite frequently. Jesus knew everything. He's omniscient. However, the question is, how can we have more compassion for a farm animal than for a person? Let's think about this. The religious leaders were completely devoid of their compassion for the afflicted because they were so blinded by their religious rules and their rabbinical teachings. And basically, they scrutinized Jesus. Today, and I've used this word, someone is a critical spirit. A critical spirit. They just point the finger and they're critical. Let me ask you a question. How many, how many <laughs> watched The Muppet Show when you were kids? Anybody? Oh, a lot of people familiar with The Muppet Show. How many still watch it as an adult? No, just kidding. <laughs> The Muppet Show basically was set like a, maybe a church or a stage where the Muppets would be on the platform and, and there would be Muppets in the audience. And, and there actually was a balcony. Yeah, you know where I'm going with this. <laughs> and there were two Muppets, two elderly Muppets, that were constantly poking fun at anything that the Muppets did. You know, they were what I would call a critical spirit. And it was funny back in the day, but it's not really funny when people do that today. They didn't offer to help, they didn't offer to, I'm pointing at the balcony, you guys are not the, <laughs> I just, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> but they just were constantly making fun of, poking fun of anything, that, and they were Muppets themselves, by the way. But they were curmudgeon and they were crusty. And these people were, 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 you know, it was one of those things where you ever get into a situation where there's almost like, um, there's not even a hostile discussion. But there's words said, and you, now all of a sudden you feel uncomfortable. It's a social setting, and you can see the, the uncomfortable feelings between both parties, and you kind of say to yourself, oh, I wish I wasn't sitting so close, or I'd, I'd go for the door. So this is the, the tension that you could break with a knife that was going on in this room. However, the critics absolutely knew that Jesus was drawn to a person in need. See, Jesus had an MO. He had a habit. He had a modus operandi, right? 
He always did the same thing in certain respects. And that's funny because God can be predictable in his word. He's always loving. He's always forgiving. Boy, that God, he's so predictable. And we can rely on that predictability when we're in a jam. But Jesus was also predictable. And these guys knew if they followed Jesus around long enough, he would always find the person who was ill, who was sick, who was disabled, and he would make that person better. And i got to tell you this, brothers and sisters, when your critics know your MO and that you're always the type of person that's looking to help others, that's a good thing. And I think a sub-theme woven through this this morning is that it's a really good thing when we emulate, emulate our Lord Jesus Christ in many ways. Fourth point, in Mark 3, 5, let's go back to Mark. It says, when he had looked around at them with anger, this has to be addressed, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he looked at them with anger. And we know this, that Jesus had this habit, this knack for healing people on the Sabbath. I believe, and I actually listened recently to a uh, teaching, you got to check this out, put it in a search engine. He's in, his name is Pastor Sandy Adams, and the title of the message is called the man, Christ Jesus. And he just talks about, even in our society, where society is so trying to feminize men, even in the church, make them ineffective. You know, there's a lot of problems with our society, both with men and women. This was called the man, Christ Jesus. I was cheering through this entire message. But this guy really puts it together nice. I believe that these were purposeful confrontations for a good reason. Almost as if to say, hey, everybody, it isn't about religious duties. Do, and today, too, it isn't about doing religious duties. It isn't about going to church and falling in line. Well, it's a quasi-Christian church or a pseudo-Christian church or what I think is a Christian church. And I can do all these things, follow all the directions, give my money, and I'm going to heaven. That's not the gospel. Never has been. It needs to be a relationship with Jesus Christ. And sometimes we have to speak out for what's right and not live in fear. Verse 5, it said, their hearts were hardened, the religious leaders. They were so destructive and so deceived that they were in sin, but they were casting aspersions back on Jesus. Isn't that amazing? There's actually a term in behaviorism called projection. How many of you have ever heard that term, projection? Very interesting term where you, you have these self-loathing qualities and you can't deal with them. You don't want to deal with them. You don't want to open those doors. You don't want to fix the problem. So you take those self-loathing qualities and you project them onto somebody else, make them the villain, and attack them. That's just me. I, that's just my little spin on this. But it, it is very interesting how they, they so thought that Jesus was in sin. They so turned him into a villain. And he was the son of God. Boy, it's so easy for us, brothers and sisters, even as Christians, to deceive ourselves about our own lives. Sometimes we're our biggest fan we're the biggest propagator of our own propaganda. And you know what? It can get us into a lot of trouble. But Jesus had righteous anger. And I want to talk about anger for a moment. Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Jesus was angry at the hardened hearts that shut the door of love for others completely. And they couldn't get in. All they could do was hope to be discipled by these religious leaders. It was a cold discipleship, be a part of the clique. It was a, it was a good old boys club, pretty much. And um, Jesus had a real problem with that. And this was under the guise of doing God's will. Anger can fall normally into one or two categories, and there's others. Number one, you can look at righteous anger. 
What did Jesus often do? He defended God's word vehemently to his death. He also defended the rights of others who were being downtrodden. He, he, he never got angry for himself. He only got angry defending others. Two, selfish anger. Selfish anger is when we're constantly angry and it's motivated out of defending self. So those are the two basic um, ideas there. Anger is an emotion in and of itself. It is not sinful. It only becomes sinful when it's married to something such as violence or thinking thoughts about really hurting somebody. So then you have the anger that starts to be nexused with something else, and that's not what the Lord did. What did Jesus do when he was angry? He didn't turn into Stephen Seagal and start flipping the religious leaders across the synagogue. What he did was he expressed what he needed to express. He needed to correct the record. He said his peace, he healed the man, and then he walked away. Right? So, if, you, if you're looking at that and you have issues with that, again, anger is just an emotion. But what do we do when we get angry? How do we deal with it? Fifth point. The fifth point is, I'm going to say that this last, and, and you can see a lot of human behavior in these backs and forths. And I'll tell you what, we can learn how to be how do I say this? Well, mentally, by reading the scripture. Because all we have to do is follow what the Lord did. Listen to what he taught. We're going to talk a little bit next Sunday about the Sermon on the Mount. Excellent sermon. You know, Gandhi, and, and I, I've had this confirmed again. I did some work on this. Um, Gandhi actually carried a New Testament everywhere he went. But he saw the, the situations with some of the, the way the British treated the Indians and the way the blacks and whites in South Africa, and he saw how you know, people claiming a, a, a Christian background treated other people, and he had a problem with that. And, and he did quote, he did say this, I love your Christ, but I don't love your Christians. Well, I don't know what happened before he died. I don't know if he became a believer, but here's a guy who today even people worship, which he never asked for worship, and, and every day when it was presented to him, he carried around the New Testament because he understood that there was truth in that book. Pretty impressive, isn't it? However, the issue here was the impasse between Christ and the religious system. Again, they were still sipping old wine, going back to the last sermon. They were not new wineskins. They were not expanding for the new thing that God was going to do. And there was jealousy there. Jealousy. Because what Jesus did did not fit their theology, it did not fit their denomination, and they were also not given an integral role. So there was a jealousy issue there as well. Verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him, Jesus, how they might destroy him. Now, you have to understand this, that two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, you couldn't get two people, two groups of people, any further apart on the spectrum. And, and I'll talk about that uh, briefly. Number one, the Pharisees. If I could describe them, they were Jewish and Israeli nationalists. Think about that. They were rabbinic purists and with, in addition to their interpretation of the scripture. To a major extent, they loathed the Gentiles. And even among other Jews, they often kept with their own clique. This, this group is married with who? The Herodians. Who are the Herodians? You can find this in history books, by the way. That's the awesome thing about the scripture. I mean, not that we need it, but extra, extra biblical, easy for me to say, extra biblical history confirms what the scripture says. The Herodians, they were a mix between Jew and Gentile. Oh yeah, they had racism back then. They, there was issues back then with that. 
the Samaritans, the Herodians. They were the ruling class. They were Rome's puppets. They were sellouts to the Jewish people, and they were self-proclaimed political messiahs, very offensive to a devout Jewish person. They knew that the Herods weren't the messiah. These two groups become strange bedfellows in an attempt to destroy the Lord Jesus Christ. You ever see two dissimilar groups come together, you know, when you're really serving the Lord, and they come and they join to get against you? <laughs> and you say, wait a minute, last week you guys were talking about each other, you hated each other, now you're against me. And sometimes when you see that, and you're serving the Lord, you know that's an indicator, even though you're being persecuted, that you're doing something right. Last thought on this. Jesus brought everything out into the light. I was taught early in my discipleship that bring things into the light. I mean, obviously, if you're talking about somebody's personal business or marital issues or whatever, counseling issues, that's not what that means. But it means that these controversial issues, what are the controversies in the church? You know, Calvary is now de deciding what to do since Pastor Chuck passed on. What direction do we go in? Let's talk about it. Let's have an open discussion. Different factions argue with each other about whose way is right. Let's have an open discussion about this. Jesus brought everything into the light. And that's what I really admire about him. And you know what? That takes a lot of courage, but it's the right thing to do. And there are times that things may be confrontational, but we have to bring it out into the light. Verse 7. But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude. When they heard how many things he was doing, they came to him. And this is really like a, almost like a, a clock you can see, you know, the, the northwest and the east, and these people came from all over to find Jesus. And he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitudes, lest they should crush him. You ever, you ever see like a concert or something and somebody famous and, you know, there's like tramplings and things like that. People get so frenzied, they get so worked up that it almost, it becomes mob mentality. It's like a singleness of thought instead of each person thinking individually. So, you know, they, they just were thronging him. In one scripture it said that they tried to forcefully make him a king. Imagine that. Oh, you, you, you got to be our king. No, you, you don't have a say in it. You have to be our king. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. So Jesus withdraws to the sea. Again, it wasn't his prophetic time, A, to be the king, that's in a future dispensation, or B, to die for the sins of the world. Right? The Herodians, the, the, the Pharisees are plotting against him. They're coming after him. They're, they're signing a death warrant for him. So he withdraws. He heals the man. He says what he needs to say, and then he, he moves on. Because there was a prophetic time clock set up in the Old Testament for when Jesus would come to the earth and when he would die. Pretty impressive. So nobody today could claim to be the Messiah. Many do, but they don't know their scripture. I don't care how devout they say that they are. Jesus was the most others-centered person that ever lived. He was always ministering to others. However, he did put the crowds in perspective. This is important, I believe, in light of ministry today, because I think there's a, a different mindset in Western ministry. In his book, Be Diligent, I want to read what Warren Wearsby writes, pretty much from this point on regarding the, the crowds on page 45. 
He says, had Jesus been a celebrity and not a servant, he would have catered to the crowds and tried to please them. Instead, he withdrew from the crowds and began to minister especially to his disciples, which we're going to see in the next few verses. Jesus knew that most of the people who pushed to get here near him were shallow and insincere. But his disciples did not know this. Lest they take care of all this success seriously, or they take all this success seriously, Jesus had to teach these men the truth about the crowds and the kingdom. What do we see today in ministry? How many, how many, and how many people do you have in your church? Well, I have 100. Well, I have 200. And you know, look at that ministry. They're filling up football stadiums. Really, is that what it's about? Not according to Jesus. Today, some pander to the crowds. They can get money, they can get fame, they can get a lifestyle that's pretty much insulated from the rest of the world. But are they really interested in saving the crowds? Are they really interested in personal discipleship, which can affect more people positively than preaching to the crowds? It's something to think about. Verse 13. And he went up to the mountain and, they, and called, to, called to him those who he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him, and they went into a house. We're going to cover a few more verses about this in, in Luke's gospel, actually Luke 6, and then we're going to close for this morning. Luke 6, 12 through 16. Because he gives more information here, or different information. Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continue all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to him. And from them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. There might have been well over a hundred, two hundred actual disciples, followers of Christ. Uh, we look in John 6 and 7 when we covered that, and his teaching started to get ramped up. A lot of people left because they, they, they were not ready for the real meat of the word. And the twelve still stayed with him. So it says he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. Simon, who he had also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. What's important here? That we, as good Christians, we memorize all their names? No, that's not what's important here. A few things. Number one, People that normally wouldn't associate with each other in that culture. Listen, if you're a blue-collar, you have white-collar friends. If you're a white-collar, you have blue-collar friends in America. It was very, very different in that culture. They didn't mix. So he brought people from different echelons together. He had nationalists with turncoats. I can make a good argument for at least two of his disciples, based on the names and what's said about them, that they were very, very... Um, agreeable and affectionate towards the zealots and there's a lot of conjecture even on Judas that he might not have felt that Jesus was moving fast enough with this whole Messiah thing and he tried to push the limits he had a, he had fleshly motives okay so as we look at this imagine the zealots coming into Jesus's fold and seeing Matthew the tax collector 
You call yourself a Jew? I've seen you at that tax booth. I've seen you rip off fellow Jews. Could you imagine what Jesus, you know, but you know, it, his love brought all of them together and together they, become, they became pillars of the church. They became brothers. Amazing. So you have blue collar, white collar, nationalist turncoats, pensive deep thinkers and hotheads. <laughs> right? You know who I'm talking about. You know, you had some that were always spouting off the mouth and you had some that just sat there and they thought about it and they took it in and you can see some of these discussions when they're together and I think it's fascinating. But you know what? In the church, haven't we gotten together with people that normally we might not have associated with? That's the beauty about God. It's another family. We have our biological family and then we have our spiritual family. Right? The Bible says there's a, a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And when we make those really, and you know what's really a blessing? When your biological family is saved too, and now you're biologically connected and you're spiritually connected. That is really awesome. But Jesus brings people together. Here he brought together police officer, mailman, teacher, and a few computer guys, you know? So uh, it's pretty neat, right? The second thing that I see is that he goes from disciples to apostles. Only 12 were named apostles. What is a disciple? Well, in our vernacular, we could say that a, dis a disciple is an apprentice. They sit there, they, they, they watch, they learn, they watch, they learn, they try, they get corrected, they try again until they get it right. That's what a disciple does. However, they eventually become apostles, which means a commissioned one, which means an ambassador. So these guys start out a little messy, and that's putting it kindly, and they become pillars of the church that's lasted for 2,000 years. Although many along the way have said, oh, Christianity will never last. Jesus was felt comfortable enough with them to impart them with the Holy Spirit, to ascend into heaven, and to let them disciple. And then we hear of Polycarp and Chrysostom and all these different, you know, first through fourth century church fathers who some of them were discipled directly from the disciples. It's pretty impressive, I think. Listen, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, this stuff is way too high for me. You don't know my past. You don't know my current situation. I've really messed up a lot of things in my life. I've messed up situations. I've messed up my finances. God could never use me. You are here in the right place to hear the right message. Don't think I didn't say that at times when I used to listen to Pastor Lloyd teach at Calvary Oldbridge who mentored me. And then he finally kicked me out of the nest and there were times I said, can I come back to Old Bridge? And he said, no, you're doing a good job, stay there. <laughs> but, but you know, this is, this is what we do. You know, God works on us, he grows us. So I don't care what your situation is, God can still use you to his glory. Amen? If it wasn't for me reading about the frailties of the apostles, I might not have stepped forward. Every single person has to catch the vision for the purpose that God has for them. You might go along in the world, in the regular world, and think, well, I'm here to do this. I'm here to do that. Then you become a believer. You start to read, study. The Holy Spirit uh, convicts you of certain things, teaches you of others, and you realize, you know what? What I thought I always wanted to be, God is putting me on a different road, and you know what? I'm comfortable with this. Every person at some point, and I say this loosely, has to go from a disciple to an apostle. 
We're followers of Christ. We read the word. We come to church. We fellowship with other believers. And at some point, if you can't fight him on it, you know, God wants to commission you to do something. And you know what? You're going to do something great, and it's going to be for his glory. Amen? Let me tell you something, that you will stand up for what's right, and you'll get grief for it, but there's nothing like living according to God's purpose for you in your life. He designed you when you were in your mother's womb, before you were a bunch of cells that, that were brought together, that started multiplying. He knew your future. He knows your gifts. God has called disciples 2,000 years ago. And we can read the scripture and we can read Acts and Philippians and say, oh yeah, and they said that the disciples turned the world upside down. What type of world was it? A pagan world. Polytheist. The government was all into their false gods. They killed Christians. They had orgies. They, they had drinking parties. They were fleshly. And, the, and these Christians, these small group of outcasts turned the world upside down. Brothers and sisters, some would argue that we're the majority in American culture. What are we doing? Sometimes I think because we have it easy, we just kind of sit back and take our ease. Have you read the news lately? You know, one of the, our representatives in New Jersey wants to now have Darwin Day. Right? You saw the, maybe you saw the debate with Ravi Zacharias or the other one with, um, with uh, Bill Nye and Ken Ham. I'm going to talk a little bit about that next Sunday. What are we doing? What are we doing with our lives? That culture out there is rotting. And the Bible says that we're to be the salt of the earth in our little sphere. It doesn't mean, Pastor Joe, you know, it's a lot of pressure. I'm going to go out there. What am I going to do? Maybe God wants you to reach one person, maybe a little bit at a time. But we need to be open to what he says. He's making an offer. And the question is, will you receive that offer? Let's pray.